Death allows us to have this cycle of pass it along, of letting other people continually make it better. So it's necessary that we die. It's necessary and important. I'm Brandon Dawson, and this is The Distiller, a podcast about how we find meaningful work and how we find meaning in the work we do. My guest for this episode is Cole Imperi. Cole is a thanatologist. She researches, studies, and teaches about death, dying, and grief. Simple enough. But what she actually does, her daily work, is kind of a marvel. Cole is someone who has taken an area of interest, a passion, and turned it into an entirely new, previously uncharted career. She is building not only several fields of study, but a way to make a living and a life in her area of interest that nobody really has ever done. And I'm not sure I can say that of anyone else who's been on the show so far. So needless to say, I was very excited to meet and to talk with Cole. Cole and I met at the historic Mercantile Library in downtown Cincinnati. The Mercantile Library is nothing less than a legitimate American landmark. It occupies the 11th and 12th floors of the historic Mercantile Library building in downtown. It is one of only a couple dozen surviving membership libraries in the United States. It's been continuously in operation since 1835 and has over 80,000 titles in their catalog. They continuously host writers, speakers, musicians, and experts, everyone from Salman Rushdie and Margaret Atwood to Steve Earle and Chuck D. I can't say enough about what a special place it is, and I can't thank Executive Director John Faherty and Programs and Marketing Manager Amy Hunter enough for welcoming us in on a Friday afternoon. Please check out our website at thedistillerpodcast.com where we have links to the Mercantile Library's website and do some research, learn more about this truly special place. So they let Cole and I hole up in the 12th floor conference room where we toasted the 15th birthday of her dog, Ruby, with Prosecco. This is one of those times as an interviewer where there were so many things I wanted to talk about that I kind of was afraid we wouldn't get deeply into any of them. Hopefully, we were able to cover enough ground and go deep in the right areas. We talked about death and dying, about ideas of vocation and calling in your work, and we talked about the way that failing to show up as our true selves robs those around us of the benefit of our input and our contribution to the larger picture. Cole doesn't mess around. She's one of the few people I've had on the show who have asked me questions during the interview that have stopped me in my tracks and challenged me to find and engage with the unique work of my own life. She's definitely a kindred spirit, and I hope you'll enjoy her energy and her insight as much as I did. Here it is. This is my conversation with Cole and Perry on The Distiller. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah so. Well, all right. So officially, cheers and cheers. welcome. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I've been really, really looking forward to this. I had heard your name a million times. Okay. And then I started to do, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) But then I started to do the research and see everything that goes into everything that you do. You're, and this is a compliment, one of those folks that I can't just say you're this. You are a thanatologist. Yep. And I'm going to ask you in a second what that means for the (laughs) listeners, but you're also a designer, a writer, a podcast host, a speaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, you do. You have two different podcasts, uh, mm-hmm. the Life, Death, and Tarot podcast and the American Thanatologist podcast, both of which we will link to you to on the website. Thank you. And, and so much other stuff. Mm-hmm. So 
I would imagine all the time you get asked just what do you do? Is there a, like a like an encapsulation of that that you present to people? Yeah, so I always say, so I'm a thanatologist, and thanatology is the study of death and dying. Okay. So that's like the name of the field. Right. And it's actually, it's a, it's a small field overall, mm-hmm. but it's incredibly huge. Because if you think about, so the thing that makes things living is that they die, is that the end point in the life cycle is death. Mm-hmm. That includes plants, right? any living thing. Um, but it also includes living things that don't have bodies, like marriages, which also sometimes end, or right. businesses, which also sometimes end. So it's actually an extremely vast area that touches a lot of things. Okay. And when I frame it that way, it helps people understand why, if you look at my resume or my background, why it seems like, what are you doing? And as your background states, we call that curiosity. Yeah. And I call that living yep. <laughs> fully. You yeah, know, yeah. Um, being around death so much has really given me permission to just be who I am and, and love all the time, right everything. Hmm. And that's the, it's such a gift. So being around death yeah. as much as you have, yeah. tell us more about that. Yeah, so, okay, I have worked with death and dying for over a decade now in, in a lot of different ways and a lot of different angles. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, my husband and I own a consulting firm. It's called Doth. It's been around for, it'll be 13 years. Okay. And our clients, this is my advertising graphic design background, mm-hmm. um, are like funeral homes, cemeteries, crematories, hospice facilities, and even companies that are like, <sighs> death is a thing. How do we look at it? Or how do we right. acknowledge this? Because if you think about, and you have an ad background as mm-hmm. well, you know, some products, especially consumer products that are on the market, like even think about like band-aids or medications. Yeah. Sometimes you're using those for people who are dying. Right. And so companies want to understand how to frame that, how to have those conversations. Um, so we get brought in to consult on those areas. Um, so that's one piece. Okay. And then another piece is I teach for two mortuary colleges. Um, so I'm working with all these individuals from the age of 18. My oldest student right now is 65 who are going to school to become funeral directors. Okay. I am not a funeral director, but I have worked with funeral directors for over a decade. I'm also a certified crematory operator, and I have certified over a thousand funeral directors over the last six years to become certified cremation arrangers, traveling all across the U.S. I've been in more cemeteries, crematories, and funeral homes than I can count. I've also seen a lot of dead people. Um, I've had personal loss in my life. Um, And then I also serve locally in Cincinnati, um, my community as what's called a death companion. Mm -hmm. So death companioning People think this is new. If you've heard of like death doulas or death midwives, right, right. companioning includes the whole spectrum. And really, all that is is like if you were like, "Hey, Cole, so and so in my life is dying." Mm-hmm. I'm a human, so my response is to be like, "Oh my gosh, what can I do to help?" Yeah. That's companioning. Right. Um, so I do that locally in my community. And because I'm a uh, certified crematory operator, I can often, if they choose cremation, cremate them which, yourself. Yeah. Which can be really helpful. Like, imagine if your mom died and you knew that Cole right. was going to be with her for right. that. I right. mean, what a gift, right? Yeah, and I'm totally. proud to be able to do that for people. Um, I also serve on the board of two cemeteries in the Cincinnati area. Um, Linden Grove, which is in um, 
Covington, mm-hmm. 175 years old. We have 22,000 residents. A lot of them have had very colorful lives, and yeah. we try to preserve their history. And then a new, brand new startup cemetery. Wrap your head around that. That's a phrase I've never <laughs> yeah. heard. Well, people don't do it because in the U.S., cemetery law is older than zoning laws. Right. And um, people don't do it. And when you deal with like the state's, they they've never dealt with it, so you it's Nobody really knows hard how to, to do. create yeah. a new cemetery. And the problem is when you buy land to create a cemetery, it immediately becomes valueless the second you put a dead body on it. Wow, yeah. And so you can't get a mortgage to buy okay. property. So that's another challenge. So anyway, that's called Heritage Acres, and by the end of this year, we will be able to bury people, green burial style on our grounds, and that's out in Pierce Township. That's amazing. It's super cool. I mean, it's it's really cool, so yeah. Yeah, it's a huge, obviously, f- area of interest and field of study. Yeah. So at the, at the, at the very, why? Why, are you, why were you so interested in this? Why have you been so interested in this? Yeah, so that's always the next question. <laughs> why the heck do you do that? Especially because I think many people have the experience when they meet me, you would not necessarily look at me and be like, she works in death, right? Yeah. Like, you're like, is she a designer? Whatever you might, yeah, like, might expect a person to look like <laughs> yeah. who spends time talking about death. Yeah, you yeah. don't look like that. Um, so throughout my 20s, I pursued a lot of study on Eastern traditions. Okay. Yoga, Ayurveda. If it was hippy-dippy, I was there. Uh-huh. Um, as you do in your 20s, right? Sure. I think that's the time. And um, in my 20s, I also picked up a degree in Judaic studies, and I learned to read and write biblical Hebrew. I learned to speak modern Hebrew. Like you do. Because as like an 18, 19-year-old, I was really angry at religion. Uh-huh. And so I was like, I'm going to learn everything about it so I can know it. Right. Um, but that is what led me to the sort of more spiritual aspect of things. Yeah. Um, death was never something that I wanted to grow up to do it kept following me. Hmm. It just kept showing up. And near the sort of the mid to tail end of my 20s, um, it started to get really heavy because I was resisting it because it kept showing up and people kept bringing it to me. And um, I had to come to terms with the fact that this might be a calling. And that meant that I had to come to terms with the fact that callings are a thing that are real. Yeah. Um, And so I went through a process of vocational discernment, which is found within the Catholic tradition, which is a faith I was raised in, but I am a Jewish Buddhist today. (laughs) Um, But I kind of, I followed that and I worked with some local nuns. Uh, It took like 18 to 24 months. So when you become a nun or become a priest, you have to go through vocational discernment to really discern if this is your vocation. So I followed that um, and that allowed me to have acceptance, permission, and a blessing Mm -hmm. to do what I'm doing. Um, And that was when I came to accept that this is what my life is going to be. And was I going to be someone who was going to uh, stick around for that or was I going to avoid it? Yeah. Um, And in death and dying, I see a lot of people who at the end of their life are facing the fact that they spent their whole lives avoiding the thing that kept following me or right. kept following them and that they 
maybe should have spent some time on and doing. Um, vocations are not easy. Vocations are difficult. They are not glamorous, beautiful, fun things. They have a lot of gifts, but they're very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes our vocations are things as simple as just being who you really are and stopping hiding parts of yourself. Right. And that is a lifelong journey for people. So, yes. So much in that. Because the idea of, of vocation is so much of what's in this podcast, is so much of what exactly. led the, me to Exactly, the soul of work. That. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And part of the reason that I'm doing this is because I have, for years, sought to try to find whether there was a thing, was there a thing that was chasing me? And I've, I've found some things. That's another discussion I want to talk about you. But I, I so connect with that idea mm-hmm. of trying to find the thing. T- tell me a little bit, and you don't have to go as deep as you want to go, but when you say that death was, was following you or chasing you, what do you mean by that? What did that look like to you? So, um, okay, so I've had personal loss in my life, just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, a great way to form meaningful connection with other people is to talk openly about the worst days of your life. Don't be afraid of that. If anybody is listening, it is just a gift to be able to do that. Um, so my first real kind of like personal death thing and a moment where I realized, like, there's a post-it note on my back that says, like, she's a good candidate. Uh-huh. Um, I was 16, September 11th, um, and I was out of school on September 11th. And I was rehearsing my, fa- my grandfather's eulogy as I was watching Katie Couric. Mm-hmm. Saw the tower, like, everything oh, happened. Oh, the September 11th. The September 11th, okay, 2001. Right. Yeah. And so I was... For some reason, mm-hmm. in my big-ass family, are we allowed to say cuss words on this? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> okay, absolutely, okay. yeah. So in my giant um, Cincinnati German Catholic family, um, I have 64 first, second, and third cousins. Wow. I think it's higher now. I have a bunch of aunts and uncles. I was the one that did my grandfather's eulogy. To this day, I don't really know why. Mm. Um, and also, 16 is pretty young. That was my first, like, yeah. Family member lost. It's a heavy so, moment. Yeah. For that young of an age. Um, and I did it and I was into it. It's not the best eulogy I've ever written, but um, that is kind of the first thing. And I realized that was it. And then um, in grade school, several years ago, the mother of one of my best friends growing up sent me a card that I made in third grade to, gave, to give to my friend Katie. Her name was Katie. Katie's dog, Moose, died. Hmm. And I remember when Moose was dying, we got to go over to the house to, to be with Moose as he was dying right. because we spent time with him. And um, I remember, like, Moose was, like, actively dying, this dog. And me and Katie, third graders, we get a microphone and we start interviewing him. And we're like, <laughs> so you're about to leave. What's it like? What are you feeling? We oh, used wow. to do weather reporting for uh-huh. fun. Um, and that family invited me over for this. It's not typically something you do with other eight-year-old kids, right? Right. right. Um, so Moose died. We were together. And then a few days later, I put together this card with, like, tips for, like, how to navigate the loss. And what's interesting is I do not come from an, like, emotive, feely family mm-hmm. at all, which is probably the reason that I am the way that I am. A lot of times the way that we develop is in response to what is not present yep. in, you know, the environment as you grow up. Um, so I don't know if that's helpful to hear, but that's sort of like some of the little stuff that was happening. And, you know, as you look back as an adult, you see these things and you're like, that's a little odd that that occurred. Right. So there's something, some skill 
that I have mm-hmm. that involves difficult moments where I'm extra equipped or more comfortable with it or right. just um, Yeah, ready not to afraid. step up to the occasion and be there in a way that other people can't bring themselves yeah. to it. Yeah. And so you... Um, you had these experiences where where you're recognizing that there's a vocation. You go through, and I'm really interested in that process because I'm fairly aware of the process in a monastic mm-hmm. sense of the sort of vocational identification, but not out of that process. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I've ever heard somebody applying describe it. applying it to. And then you're here you are. You've got the blessing and you've got the recognition and you have decided to own it. Mm-hmm. And then what do you do? Because you've created... There's not a unless you're going to become a a, a a funeral director, unless you're going to go into something which you didn't do any of these things. You have mm-hmm. created for yourself mm-hmm. a very unique place in the world and a very unique career. Yes. How did you embark on that, and how much of that did you even have any awareness of at the time? So, you you embrace this thing. What are you going to do next? Yeah. So in the the realm of thanatology, like. Other people that are thanatologists, like who are the members of these, like the Thanatology Association? A lot of them are like licensed clinical mental health counselors and they deal with grief or trauma, or they're like physicians who deal with oncology, right? They have a primary thing and then they have this thanatology background and right. perspective. Um, I'm different in that uh, most of my focus today is on public outreach. Um, And I often frame that as public health education because Mm -hmm. death is a public health issue. It affects all of us like all the time. Um, And so what I do, there is not somebody else that I have encountered that is doing what I'm doing. Um, And just in the last 18, 24 months, um, I've really been working very hard to speak and reach people and just talk about it in a way that is engaging and not scary and being able to share um, some of the results of my years in this field. Because um, what I have noticed is that for most people, we have a loss or a trauma and it becomes something that we want to box up and put in the top shelf of a closet and shut the door. Mm -hmm. And that's where that part of our life lives. But immense freedom comes when you unbox it and put it on display. And, you know, it doesn't have to be the center of your life, but it's like, you know, the focal point of a room in your house of life. Mm, right. Um, and so all of my work is centered around doing that right now. And I'm actively really trying to move to the next level of, um, I have a literary agent, I'm currently shopping, he's currently shopping a book for me, Mm -hmm. um, and more um, speaking, because that's what I'm best at doing. And that was hard for me to allow myself permission to be able to to say that and to believe that. So um, as a Midwestern white woman who grew up in Deer Park, Blue Ash, Ohio, there is no f- other family member that is an entrepreneur. Um, <laughs> I also didn't have children, mm-hmm. which is very normal in my family. So I felt a lot of like guilt and like just a sort of shame mm-hmm. about that I am not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And then I was raised Catholic, but I'm a Jew, and um, I'm affiliated very closely with a Buddhist sangha um, out of the area, and you know I'm. One of the things in my life, and I'm not the only one, is that I'm an inside outsider. It's like 
I work in death, but I'm not a funeral director, mm-hmm. right? Right. And like, uh, I worked in advertising, but in this very specific niche. Yeah. I didn't work with like, you know, the the big names and the big gets that you try to get. Right. Um, so did I answer your question? Yeah, no, it's all, like, it's all part of the answer to the question. Yeah. Yeah. And so you can't help who you are. And life is a process of becoming who you are. Mm-hmm. And the shittiest days of your life is a really great shortcut way to get there. How? Okay. Let me think of a really good example here. All right. I'm going to pour more champagne while yes. you're... Oh, yes. By the way, let us discuss. Um, there's we, champagne here. Yeah, we didn't talk about that, did <laughs> yes. we? We are sipping champagne. It is yes. Friday afternoon. Uh, because today is Ruby's birthday. Happy birthday, Ruby. Ruby is my 15, as of today, 15-year-old beagle. Mm-hmm. She has dwarfism. I found her when she was 19, dumped, or when I was 19, dumped on the side of the road. I'm 33 now. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you what. Dogs, joy. <laughs> Total joy. And so I am celebrating her Dogs today. Equal joy. <laughs> yes. Well, again, happy birthday, Ruby. Cheers and to Ruby. Cheers again. <laughs> okay. Let's, you know what? Let's talk about my hair. Okay. How about that? That's sure. a good example. Okay. So. Do you want to, I mean, people can go to the website. Oh, yeah, we should. How about, how, about you, how about you describe what I look like in okay. front of me to my face? <laughs> that's that's <laughs> not going to be awkward at all. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> uh, your head is, is shaved on both sides and in mm-hmm. the back. Mm-hmm. And then on top, you have what in, in photos I had previously seen was sort of a shock of red hair. Today, it is a, it is an, a dark mm-hmm. emerald green. Uh, I don't know how else to describe it other than you are somebody who is not... Uh, afraid yeah. of like putting the eyes on you. Yeah, not, not scared of it at all. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about how I ended up doing that because mm-hmm. um, okay, there's a, here's a like a little lesson that I've learned over the years in death and dying. We reject in others what we often don't allow in ourselves. Yep. Okay. We reject in others what we often don't allow in ourselves. Very rarely, I have people that come up to me. Very rarely, and who are like why are you doing this? Why do you look like that? Who hmm. do you think you are? And it's always people that are very safe looking. Yeah. You know, they're, they're fitting in They're you know, and that's fine. And I also want to be really clear that I'm not shaming anybody's appearance. So in my case, um, almost five years ago, I was assaulted. Oh. Um, yeah, not a good day. Um, yeah. and I pressed charges mm-hmm. And when I pressed charges, um, a group of individuals acting on behalf of my assaulter, um, my husband and I were on the receiving end of more than 100 separate separate instances of harassment and intimidation over that period between I pressed charges and as a result, like the trial, yeah, yeah. because they wanted, you know, what you to drop the case or yeah, okay, yes. So that is one of the things that happens. Mm to a lot of people when they pursue justice through the legal system. Um, Before that happened, um, I had just sort of was like leaving this hippy-dippy 20s phase. And so I actually did an exercise for a year. I had, my hair is naturally brown. It just, I let it grow for like three years, didn't cut it, didn't dye it. I wore a lot of just like browns and neutrals and, but I always wanted to be, stylish. Like I always wanted that. And I was, and I worked with design, 
but it was like I had this like fear of doing that or like fear of being seen, I guess right. maybe is a way to put it. Mm-hmm. So when you go through something traumatic like that, um, and you, you can either, some people respond by retreating and some people respond by opening. Mm-hmm. And I knew that because of my work as a thanatologist, this horrific, destroying experience left a pile of shit everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it was up to myself and my husband for us to decide if we were going to take this pile of crap and let it rot, or if we were going to figure out how to compost it and turn it into fertilizer for new growth, right? right? Because poop is a great fertilizer. Yeah. So one of the things that I did was I allowed myself to be who I was, yep. to be who I really was. And um, so I started to open up about this experience. And the more that I talked about it, I met other people. And I found that um, when I embraced the style that I have now, mm-hmm. I felt more and more myself. And the way that the world interacts with me now is such a gift and a blessing. And if I hadn't allowed myself to just go where I felt I needed to go. Because the haircut that I have, um, people often tell me that it's like, you know, if you write it out on paper, it's an odd style, but it works on me. Yeah, totally. Okay? Yeah. Um, If I hadn't done that, I I wouldn't have the interaction with the world that I do now. So let let me break this down. Five plus years ago, when I looked like how I was, quote, supposed to look, Mm -hmm. you know, and I fit in with my family and all that stuff. Um, I know, you you have interactions. Now, and and when I'm in the world, and I'm extroverted, I get more people talking to me and interacting with me and saying, what do you do? And then I get to talk about death. Mm -hmm. And um, so many times it results in meaningful connections that allow me to support my community, which is the world, in a way that I wouldn't be able to do otherwise. Right. Um, as an example, um, I work in New York City a lot, and I was there several years ago, and I went to the Museum of Sex, which is a great place to go. Uh-huh. Um, sex and death are also very, very connected, which is part of why I go. Bookmark. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I went there, and the guy took my ticket, and he's like, hey, can, can I ask what you do? And he literally put his hand out to block me from going up to the exhibits. And I was like, oh, I'm a designer. Because I was like in, I'm taking personal time mode. Right, right, right. And he's like, what kind of designer? I'm like, graphic. <laughs> and he's like, what do you really do? And I said, well, and when these, when these things happen now, I know, I know to. Yeah, yeah. Give I know. Some time. Yeah. Yep. And I said, well, I said, I'm a you know, thanatologist. And I told him what it was. And he, um, I'm going to try not to get emotional with this, but he goes, my uh, best friend died by suicide in front of me um, eight months ago. Wow. And he said, I almost didn't come to work today because I'm having a bad day. And um, there's magically no one in line behind me, but the museum gift shop was full. And so I stood there and I put my hand on his shoulder and um, I hugged him. And we stood there and hugged. I say, you're, you're going to be okay. Mm. You're going to be okay. Um, and we talked for a few minutes, and he expressed that he was very thankful that for some reason somebody sent me to him that day. Wow. So I went through the exhibit, and when I came out, um, one of the other coworkers told me that he decided to take a personal day. Mm-hmm. 
and he headed off home. And um, so that's just an example. If I didn't, if I wasn't who I was, who right. I am, right, right. that interaction would not have happened. And I'm not trying to, to say here that, oh my God, I have like cool hair and so I'm saving the world. It's not about that. It's just... It's about being yourself. It's really, really important to be who you are. Yeah. There's, uh, yeah, there's so much in that. Like there's, I want to I mm-hmm. examine that because that is so much of the discussion of why we do what we do apart from specifically the decisions that you have made. Or how, how do we free ourselves up to make the choices. I have often said that I imagine people listening to this show that one of one of the people that might listen to the show is a person who's dissatisfied with where they are and that can be vocationally mm-hmm. or it can just be personally and is trying to figure out how to make changes. And so yep. many of the discussions that we have are how people found the courage to make the changes to inhabit who they they truly are or want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, that's to me we talk about how we find meaningful work and it's like what is meaningful work mean but ultimately it's like connecting with something that is true to who you are and so much of that so the the thing that I'm drawing here is that so much of that has to do with factors other than just what you do for a living it has to do with choices you make about the self that you inhabit every day and what you present to the world it goes back to this idea of quality Mm -hmm. so if I am living my life as myself and I, you know, being yourself is so much easier. It takes so little effort. So that gives me more time to be more fully present to my work, to mm. my vocation. If you are living your life and doing all the things you're supposed to be doing, you're having to put a lot of time and energy toward that. So sometimes the key to unlocking clarity in these other areas of your life, you have to start with yourself. Um, And also, we changed throughout our life. That assault and everything that happened drastically changed um, me at my core. It totally changed and rocked my essence. It also allowed me now, thankfully, I can connect with so many more people in a meaningful, deeply meaningful way. Um, And if I, and honest to God at this point, I am grateful that Mm -hmm. that happened. Why didn't that, that would have driven any number of people in in a way. Why didn't it do that to you? I think because um, death is my teacher, first and foremost. And um, the thing about teachers, you, a good teacher is not always someone who is warm and snuggly and hugs you, right? Mm-hmm. A good teacher is somebody that you know, reams your ass, you yeah. know, and knows what you need. And yeah. Gives it and to you you're at the like, time. I need an extension. And they're like, Nope, you get a zero. That's a good teacher. And that's what death is. And death doesn't just mean dead body death. Mm-hmm. It also means shadow losses, which are like divorce, bankruptcy, your best friend ghosts you. Those are all difficult teachers, but they have the potential to give you the most, um, fodder for new learning and personal growth. And, uh, when someone is in the immediacy of a loss, they do not want to hear this conversation, yeah. and I'm respectful of that. But eventually, you know, you have the option. Do you want to create with the crap that you've been dealt? Are you going to let it rot, or are you going to turn it into fertilizer? Yeah. And those are your two choices. Another way of framing it is um, some people think that they've been buried after a traumatic experience, but maybe you've been planted, hmm. you know? And it's up to you to um, de- de- determine that. Yeah. That that makes me think about time and how you decide when you're having a conversation with a person like that. You can't go in 
the day of the event or the day after the right. event. Right, and be like, like hey, guess what? You're about right. to get some good lessons. Oh, everything's going to no, be fantastic. it's terrible. Yeah. yeah. I mean, how do you know? Is that an intuitive decision based on when somebody reaches out to you? How do you know whether to be the, no, it's time to move on, or this is the time to really focus inward and be soft with yourself? Yeah. You gave me, you have, you gave me one of these pins that says, be kind, I'm grieving, be gentle. Yes. That's the other message, which is like sometimes you need that softness Yes. How do you know when you're talking to somebody where they are in that process and how to handle that? Yeah. So um, it's not always like I'm not always accurate with it. There have been times where it's been like, oh, wasn't the right time. Um, But most of the time I allow other people to approach me because people Mm. know what I do. Um, They know how to get in touch with me. And so I kind of allow the other person to make the first step. So in like a counseling, um, in, in like the counseling profession, one of the things that those professionals are taught is you want to encourage other people to be responsible for their own emotions. So if you step in and be like Midwestern mama, like, hey, like, let me help you. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not encouraging them to be responsible for themselves. So the way that I empower that is by being present and available and having podcast episodes out and blog posts and YouTube videos. Um, And then I also speak publicly. And I know that those people will come if they need something. Um, And I have set up my sort of system so that I can provide maybe another place to go or explore. Um, So that's, does that make sense? That's sort of the approach. And that's sort of what I encourage anybody. Um, You know, you want to encourage other people to be empowered Like, listen, when we're all born, you have everything that you need to get through your life. You already have it. Everybody already has it. And the disillusionment comes when we start to think that we were shorted something or we don't have it. That kind of thinking guarantees that will come true. And, um, you know, as someone who hangs out with a lot of Buddhists and and practice that way, like, the, the magic is in the fact that you have everything that you need. You do. It's up mm-hmm. to you to use it. It's up to you to figure out how it all works. Rather than looking, so uh, translating that for somebody that's in the middle of that experience, rather than looking for somebody else to give them something they don't have that's going to make them okay. Yep. yep. You can meet with someone with what's, else and what's in them. have that connection and be like, man, I just talked to Brandon and this really put two and two together. Mm-hmm. Great. But it was up to me to reach out to you or up to me to offer a vulnerability about what I'm dealing with to allow a response for something to fill that space in. Yeah. Is, uh, I, I think uh, Americans, maybe Westerners, may, maybe not, you can help me round this thought out, are generally terrified of death. Yeah. <laughs> is, is, uh, in your research, are we, um, you said you started out with a lot of Eastern studies. My mm-hmm. sense is that a lot of Eastern traditions are a lot more, um, if not embracing, certainly at peace with the idea of the cycles of life and death, um, and potentially even celebrate it yeah. um, in ways that we don't. Why are we so terrified by it? Where does that come from? Yeah. So, um, okay. Avoidance. Mm-hmm. Everyone listening, you, me, there's something we are actively avoiding right now. Maybe it's a discussion. Maybe it's that email that you've got to like put all your brain power in to figure out how do I respond without ticking this person off, okay? The opposite of avoidance is presence. Mm-hmm. The, opposite, the opposite of avoidance is not embracing or it's actually just presence. And presence is being a witness and in it 
You're not living in the future. You're not living in the past. You're actively present in it. We, and, and particularly American culture, we're death avoidant for a couple reasons. Number one, humans are built to survive. Death is not survival, so we actively try to avoid it. Um, the other reason is that American culture, we either, there's three phases that we live in. Rumination, which is like rehashing the past and things that happened in the past. Presence, which is where we want to be. Um, and then worry, which is future. Mm-hmm. Rumination, presence, worry. American culture is built on living in either a ruminatory state or a worry state. We're worrying about that promotion we need to get or, oh my God, this trip I have to book. Or we're living in social media, which is all stuff from the past, Mm -hmm. right? Like I scroll through Instagram and it feels like I'm looking at things that are in the present, but all that stuff is from the past. Presence is no phone. It's sitting here with two glasses of champagne on a Friday talking to each other about real shit. Mm -hmm. Our society is not built on that state. It is built on rumination or worry states. Where does that, I mean, we were that way before social media though. Like, I know. Where does that come from it's in the a, American? It's, it's a cultural thing. Um, there's a lot of theories about that. And the way that I particularly phrase it is of my own creation. There are other variations and things that if you want to look into thanatological theory, you can delve into. But um, I mean, if you really look at your life and think about where you're spending your time, if you're on social media, you're spending time in the past, mm-hmm. right? You know, how, how much of your day are you spending in a, in a past state and how much of your day are you spending in the present, really? Right. Yep. Um, so that's the way that I explain why we're so death avoidant. And, and, and the other thing is death, dead body death or shadow losses, um, because we spend so little time in the present, when you are talking to somebody about loss face-to-face, we don't have a skill set to be able to be like, oh, it's normal to sit here and be sad with somebody. Um, and then on social media, when you see posts about loss all over, like right now, Sudan, mm-hmm. this is what's going on now. We're seeing these posts that are from the past state, and we can just scroll by them. Right. So we reinforce those behaviors on top of it. And we end up um, in the yogic tradition, we call these samskaras. A samskara is, if you ever, like imagine a wagon going down a muddy pathway and that wagon wheels are gonna leave these ruts in the road and then it will dry out and then you come along in your wagon the day after and your wagon wheels are gonna jump down into those ruts. That's a samskara. It's like you've done this pattern so many times. It's so much work to traverse down the path, not in the ruts that are already there. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is the spiritual work of living. Yes! (laughs) (laughs) Now I just want to go away in the other room and think about that for a while. And and we all have our samskaras. You know, some of us have no problem with the past. Some of us have the issue with the worry. Mm -hmm. So many of us live in a worry state about where are we going, what are we doing? And that's been, that's the state that I have a hard time with and have because of the fear. And I think a lot of entrepreneur type people have this. I thought for my life that I was going to be like, like married, have kids, maybe I'll like manage an office and like just like live in Deer Park the rest of my life, which by the way, I freaking love Deer Park. Okay. (laughs) Like I love it. Um, And it's been hard for me to not have 
the what I perceive to be the security and stability that would come with that. And instead, I'm a freaking thanatologist in a world that doesn't exist that I'm having to create for myself right. and try to like make a living, but also do good work. Yeah. And that's that is my hard part because I am like a very like fiscally conservative type person and yeah. So and you're out here in the unknown. Yeah. There's nothing to compare to. Yeah. And that's not what I would have picked for myself, but ha ha, as, as some people would say, that's God laughing at your plans, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So how do you know as you build this thing for yourself and as you build this, this career in a place that doesn't exist, how are you triangulating? How are you making decisions and how do you know if you're... Uh, on the right path is the wrong way to say it, but yeah. you know what I mean. Like, how how are you finding your way in this? My like guiding thing, and this came out of the process of vocational discernment, um, is that my mission by the time that I die is to improve the way that we die and deal with death in the United States in my lifetime, culturally. Just period. Like in in all the ways that that can mean. Yeah. Um, and as long as I'm doing that, I am trusting that. And that's hard for me because the way that I perceived myself and my expectations for myself would be that I would be working a quote unquote traditional job that was like nine to five. You go to the same office every day. You, 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 that's what I thought for myself. That's what I want for myself. But um, that's the reality of a vocation. Your vocation is going to be hard shit for you. Yeah. You know? And so I'm, that's how I know. That's how I know. And I also pay attention to like these fears that I have about not deserving what I'm doing. So like, okay, like the idea of speaking at these like big corporate companies and these big conferences, it took me a long time before I felt okay to be like, I want that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think part of it has to do with socialization as like a, a Midwestern woman, you know, sure. like who do you think you are that you should Imposter be able to syndrome. do syndrome. Bingo. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so when I notice myself having those thoughts, I have to say, okay, I see you. I hear you. Mm-hmm. That is not in service of my mission. Hmm. And that's sometimes that's it. That That's the work. Right. Yeah. In the moment, redirecting mm-hmm. yourself, mm-hmm. getting back on the, on the path. Yes. Yes. So mm-hmm. how, how is this work continually changing? Like I'm interested to know because I am a person who is very afraid of death. Mm-hmm. I think I, I think I know some of those reasons why, and some of them are general fear of the unknown. Some are cultural conditioning. Some are uh, spiritually implanted sort of ideas from a, from a relic of past belief. Mm-hmm. Um, but nevertheless, they are. I've had a couple of, of of health issues in my life that put me face to face with the fact that I was terrified of both my own death and the the impact of my death yeah. on other people. Mm-hmm. And and the way that I processed it was was sort of like through a lot of the Buddhist thought of well, this is all Maya and this is all an illusion anyway, and things yeah. come and things go, and there are cycles of things. How how has this work changed your relationship with death and with your life and with the not in a not in a esoteric sense, but in a specific how you make choices about your life and how you make choices about the inevitable end of your life? 
Yeah. Okay, so first of all, let's talk about death and dying. Mm -hmm. What is the difference between death and dying? Uh, it put me on the spot. I yeah. mean, uh, I think dying is a, is a process and death is a moment mm -hmm. is the way that I think about it. Yeah. Death is like the event. Like it's like that moment between like you're living and now you're not. Yeah. Okay? It's the line but that you cross over like everything there. leading up to that. Um, when do you start dying? The moment you're born. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm, to some, to some sense. No, that's really good. This is the Bob um, Dylan, you know. I had someone tell me, <laughs> I was doing a big talk somewhere, and I, I asked this, and this uh, gal raised her hand. She's like, when you're 33, and I'm currently 33, and I was like, girl. <laughs> Careful. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, there's also the idea that you start dying the moment that your uh, mother is in utero. Because the cells that are in the egg that becomes you are, are, are in there. So, yeah. like, my mom was born in 1956. So, I a piece of me has been living in some form since the 1950s. Right. I mean, wrap your head around that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, coming... You is, look great, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. So, death keeps you young. Yeah. Um, so, coming is going. Uh -huh. And going is coming. Right. And so, if you think, like... Okay, think about when you have a coworker that leaves to go work somewhere else. Mm -hmm. From your like perspective, they're 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 leaving. Yeah. But aren't they coming? Right. Somewhere else? Yeah, they're starting a new it's thing. It's all about where where you are. Yeah. So the reality is is there's no difference between dying and living. Dying and living are synonyms. Mm -hmm. Death is the word for the transition, just like birth is the word for the transition. Right. And so, so let's think about it maybe that way. Um, the American way of thinking about it is like, when you die, like something is taken from you. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I'm seeing that like fits into this little conversation we're having is the, the okay, so first of all, death anxiety. Mm-hmm. This is like a clinical term. There is no agreed upon definition for um, for death anxiety currently. Nobody, like all these clinicians and like researchers and very intelligent people, cannot agree on a like a clinical definition for what is death anxiety. I feel like that's probably because there's no difference between dying and living. We are constantly in a state of living and dying. Yeah. So think about the things in your life right now. You probably have friendships that are ending, and you probably have new relationships that are that It's constant. It's the same. When, okay, so are you, are you tracking with I'm me I'm with here? you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. Um, if you were... Let's say that something bad, this champagne is bad. Oh my gosh. And we'll you stop. start dying <laughs> and you have like three hours left. So I'm like, oh my God, Brandon, you have this rare champagne disease. Right. And you have three hours. What are you going to regret not doing? Tell me right now. Oh, what is God. something that you're going to regret not doing? In my life or in the next three hours? So if in three hours from now, you're going to be dead. What is the thing that's popping up in your head that you haven't done that you're going to regret? Uh, I think the, I mean, there's a lot of things, but I think the, you know, the book that I wanted to write. The like, book that you want to write. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's just one simple thing, but it's right. like of the things that, that if I was, this is it. Yeah. You'd that be would like, be on the list. Shit, I didn't do that. Right. You need to do that. You need, 
you need to start tomorrow. You're not going to have the time. No one's going to give you a week to sit there and write. You have to do baby steps every day, 15 minutes in the morning. You have to do this. Get started. You have to. Like, seriously, watching somebody die with the reg- people regret what they don't do. They don't regret what they did do. Yeah. They regret what they don't do. And you, it's not about you, what you owe yourself to write that book. It's what you owe me. It's what you owe your family, your friends, and society. If you don't talk about what you know you need to be talking about, um, like, suck it. Like, yeah. that's shitty, really. Yeah. Yep. And that's what I try to encourage people, the things that you're not letting yourself do. And sometimes that's being who you are, something just that simple. Right. That hurts society. That hurts our community. And if you walk down the street, the people you walk by, everybody is withholding pieces and parts of themselves and things that they want to do. Imagine what our society might be like if that wasn't our culture. Yeah. If we all were, were being present, right? Because right. you writing your book requires presence. Require, but it's easier to be like, well, I have to do this thing in the future, or I did this thing in the past, and I'm still trying to fix that, right? Yeah. Be here. Be here yeah. now. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> how uh, how much of the different, there, there are as many different ideas about death and what happens after you die as there are people. How much yeah. does that come into the work that you do, and how much do your own ideas about that influence the work that you do? Yeah. So whenever I am working with a group or an individual, you know, a lot of times people are like, so what happens after you die? And I'm like, shit, I don't know, man. <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll tell you that when I started down this path, I knew it all, right? <laughs> I mean, I was like 18, and I had it figured out, and I was hot shit because I knew all this stuff, right? You had the answers. Yeah, and um, as adulthood goes, the more you learn, the less that you know. So when I was like 18, 19, I was really angry at religion. I was sort of raised Catholic. Um, Now I have sort of done a lot of repair work intentionally so that Catholicism exists in my life in a beautiful way. Mm -hmm. Um, I have my grandparents, um, Mary and like Jesus statue Mm -hmm. that I have around, but it like, it's a connection point for me to my roots, to my ancestry. I have my grandmother's rosary that I constantly have with me. It's with me right now. Um, And I will say the rosary. Um, There's like this rhythmic tradition with that. Yeah. So, but I was really angry at religion for a long time, which is why I studied it. Um, As I moved through and also witnessing people's deaths and working with other people who work with people who are dying, most people who have worked with end of life for a long time, I haven't met anybody, and I attend like death gatherings all the time, who feels like, who, who will say that nothing happens. Hmm. At, the, at the moment of death or in yeah, the process I, I of ha- transition. Anyone who has worked with death and dying a long time, I have never met someone who was like, yeah, nothing happens. And, that, and that's what I believed. So um, my personal beliefs is that not nothing happens. Okay. Something's going on. Yeah. But when I'm working with others, my role is to provide non-judgmental support wherever you are. My job is to help you get where you need to go on your path because your path is not my path. Mm -hmm. And, um, I love whatever anybody believes like wholeheartedly. I support it. I love it. I embrace it. And, um, in this work, 
if you are really in this work, you never put your personal stuff onto anybody else, you know? Um, And that is something that you, most people learn the hard way. You have to go through that by doing the work. um, And if you don't, you know, burn out, you know, then, and you're in it for the long run, that's sort of the place that we all get to. You learn how to do that. You learn mm-hmm. how to be there for people the way they need Where you they to be are. there without yeah. grinding your own axes. Yeah, yeah. In the moment. Yeah, because ultimately it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it, it doesn't. Who's right or wrong or who's yeah. who had the best idea when it came out in the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, yeah. Well, uh, Of the people, it's funny because we talk about there's this idea of what you do, everything that we've been talking about, but then it comes down to very specific things. Mm-hmm. You travel, you write. Mm-hmm. You speak. Yep. You talk about like some of those. Sometimes my favorite question to ask people is just how do you spend your days? Yeah. Like it's not the philosophy of your work and it's not the whole meaning. It's like how do you do, how do you just do your work? Yeah. Every day. Of the things that you're doing right now, like what are the, what are the most interesting things that you're going to do in the next couple of days and what are the greatest challenges that you face in your work right now? So... Uh, over this, like, because it's Friday, so over the next, like, three days, um, I'm writing a column um, on death and tarot cards, specifically. Um, so I have a patron where people, you can, like, pay a dollar a month or five dollars a month, and then for my patron subscribers, mm-hmm. I write a column once a month cool. that only they get. Um, so I'm going to write that because, um, like, four or five days ago, I had an appointment to see some of the world's oldest surviving tarot cards in person. Where? Um, this is at the Morgan Library Museum in Manhattan. Um, and I specifically the death card was what I was interested in seeing. Mm-hmm. Tarot cards, they're 78, yep. they're really old. So I got to see those in person. Why? I mean, other than just your work, why were you most interested in seeing the death card? Or so, was that it? So the death card in tarot is one of the most, like confusing cards for people because they think it means like, oh, you're going to die. Um, and it doesn't. Um, it's literally the equivalent of when you're reading a book and then you turn the page and there's a new chapter. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the new chapter surprises you because you're like, this didn't seem like it was time to start a new chapter. That's all That's all the death card really is. Mm-hmm. Um, but it often gets misinterpreted as like, you're going to die, um, right. which is not accurate. So <laughs> um, I'm writing specifically about that and some of the symbolism because we've been using this card symbolically since 14 something or other. Um, and here we are in 2019 and it's still a piece of our lives cross-culturally, globally. Um, So I'm going to, I have to finish writing that. And I went and did the field research on that particularly. Um, I'm also in the process of, I haven't told anybody this. You're hearing it now. Here we go, scoop. Um, Ceramics. Um, In my death companioning work, I've been doing a lot of work with uh, this thing called Jizo. Jizo is Japanese. He's like a little Buddha, like a little God. And Jizo takes care of, Water babies and water babies are um, miscarriages, stillbirths, or babies that we have that aren't that don't live on Earth very long with yeah. us. And so, in that tradition, you get a Jizo statue because when you have a loss of a baby, you have your body has been building up all this time to like give care to a physical being. And then there's no physical being, so where does all this go? Mm -hmm. So the Japanese culture has Jizo, and so you get this little statue. He's this little happy Buddha guy, um, and 
most people will keep Jizo in their homes on like an altar. And that is the place where you can physically have that interaction with what you lost, so to mm. speak. Yeah. And then eventually you get to a point where you're ready to put Jizo outside in your garden because your grief isn't like, I don't need him on the kitchen table right. now. Yep. So you put Jizo outside and then eventually you let nature take over. So maybe that ivy grows over top and you can't even really see Jizo three years later. Yeah. So this is the process of Jizo, and this is part of what my work is as a thanatologist, is trying to make help people have ways to make grief physical, because that's what our, our bodies are physical, so we need things physical to understand. So I um, have a this idea that's been brewing a long time um, where I want to create Jizo's so to speak, I don't want to appropriate that, but I want to blend it with some other things um, here locally that I can then use in my practice as a death companion mm-hmm. to give to these families cool. um, so that they can do it. So I am meeting with some ceramicists mm-hmm. to talk about how to do that because I'm not a ceramics artist. Um, and that's another thing about my work. I have to be willing to not know shit regularly. Yeah. And to show up and know nothing. And you know what? The older you get, it's harder. Because if you're in your 30s and your 40s and you've been in a career for 10 years, you are used to being the person that knows what to do. The expert. So yeah. it's harder to put yourself in positions where you are being a beginner. But it's actually really rewarding if you if you do it, if you make yourself do it. Where So what are the, I mean, this is one of those sort of that, that particular tradition. What are the other things? I mean, I, w- I guess I would have... That surprises me to hear that. I would have thought, like, you've been doing this for 10 years. You you know all the stuff. But you you do, is it rituals? Is it just emotional encounters with people? Like, what are the things that surprise you on a continual basis about this work? Or areas that you recognize you don't know maybe what you thought you knew? Yeah. So what I'm trying to do is, okay, meaning... People who can identify a sense of meaning in their life, and you have a, like a blog post up right now about what five meaningful things we've yep. learned from our guests. Okay, so when when someone is able to to identify things that are meaningful in their life, they have higher day to day levels of well being, a sense of well being, a sense of peace. It doesn't necessarily mean you're like joyful, happy, happy, mm-hmm. but just higher sense of well being. Now, what is meaningful to you is going to be different than what's meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. So I identify as a thanatologist which are, with a huge knowledge base on death, dying, all these different rituals, cultural, socioeconomic statuses, life things that happen, where we have holes um, in support. Like the Japanese have Jizo to support miscarriage, stillbirth, and infant loss. What do we have in the United States for yeah. that? Yep. Right, And we don't want to take Jizo because that belongs to the Japanese culture. But there are ways that we can create tools here to bridge those gaps. That's, that's what gotcha. I'm doing. Gotcha. Um, the button that I gave you, it says, I'm grieving. Mm-hmm. It's like a one-inch button. It says, I'm grieving across the middle in a black band. It's lilac. And the top says, be kind. And the bottom says, be gentle. Um, my oldest sister died March 6th of this year. Her name was Christina. She was like in her forties. Mm. Um, and I needed a way cause after you have a loss, sometimes when you go to the coffee shop on a Monday, you wouldn't mind if somebody asked mm. you how you are. Right. Some days 
you don't want to deal with it. You don't want to have that in your life. So the Victorians, they had a tradition of wearing black armbands Mm -hmm. or um, women in particular would have to wear all black for specific periods of time to signify that they were in a mourning state. We don't do that today, right? right? But like you walk down the street, do you know how many people you pass are dealing with a death? Right. And we don't even see it. Um, There is value in making grief physical. So I needed a way to do this because I with my work, I knew that's important. So I created this button. And on the days when I was open to my community supporting me, I would wear it. Um, And it allowed me to talk about her and to talk about how I am today in a way that because other people want to know. Yeah. But everyone's afraid to be like, so cool. How shitty do you feel today, right? right, right? right. Um, so that is, that's like one application of the way that I'm applying this work in my lifetime is by making grief and loss and just rebuilding physical. Yeah. yeah. It's one of, the, one of the questions I have here is the, is the ritual of death, that there are so many cultures that have these really specifically codified rituals around it, and yeah. you know how to participate in it both as the, as the bereaved and as the community around them. And we just don't have those things. Or if we have them, they come from traditions that we are a part of, sort of overlaid from whatever our American identity is. But there's no like overarching cultural narrative or identity around yeah. how we do that together. Yes. Yeah. And it's also a challenge because like we're comparing today to 50 years ago in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, America, like... T- I don't know, it's been like 25, per- City Lab has data on this. Um, you're more likely to live away from the place that you were born, yep. okay? In the 1950s, how common was that? I mean, you lived and grew up in the same town you were yeah. from. Yeah, yeah. So when you move away, you're moving away from that community support structure, mm-hmm. okay? So like, for example, I live in Covington in Mainstrass, and I know that like, if my husband died, um, my coffee shop would like give me free coffee or like show up for me or take care of me, right? But if I move away and I'm in a new place for a year, that's not there. Um, So one of the challenges in the U.S. culturally is that we move around a lot more. And then the other thing is that we, um, I guess we could call it like intermarry or just like, but like ethnically, religiously. And so in the funeral profession, we now, one of the challenges funeral directors face is they're not only having to navigate helping a family put together a funeral, but they're having to deal with helping blended families yeah. with like six different religions, eight different arguments, step and like half siblings who don't talk, one you can't find, you know, and then let's, different sacred let's traditions. try to help them grieve on top of that. Yeah. And it's much harder today than, than it was years ago. Yeah. Um, and I'm really interested in that. And that's, that's one of the ways that I'm working to try to like legit by the time that I die, improve the way that we deal with death and dying. And that's one of the venues right. for that. You mentioned uh, the the new, the startup cemetery. Yeah. Um, Heritage Acres. Heritage Acres. Yeah. And you used a phrase, green? Green burial. Green burial. Yeah. So to me, that means burial practices that don't the like increase the toxicity of the earth. Uh, I have a friend who who was going to uh, I don't know if he's he's doing it, but like he he wanted to start building like just pine box yeah. caskets because so much of what we do and there's there's cremation and there's um, I I think I actually have in my uh, I have a living will and I think in it there's some statement of I kind of don't care mm-hmm. 
what happens to me, so long as the people that I, that care about me are are the most cared for in the process. Yeah. And that whatever results, like put me in a burlap bag, like just just don't create more havoc and more like environmental pollution and more waste and more destruction than do something that the people that care for me care about. Yeah. Like that's kind of the statement that's in there about that. What are, what are the trends? What are the things that are happening in the world of burial Yeah. that are, that are new and that are different that people may not know about? Okay. So brand new. And I was just in New York for this. I attended an event um, with Katrina Spade from Recompose. This became legal in Washington state. There's like these hexagon shaped it looks like a beehive Mm -hmm. and then each hexagon has an inner tube and a body goes in there and then they mix like alfalfa in there and some other cool stuff straw and then 30 days later soil comes out it's called recomposition it's amazing um legal in washington state and then the family gets back three cubic yards of soil wow how cool is that like sacred soil yeah 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 or or not like you know what i mean like it's it's up to you (laughs) um so that's that's like the newest wow what we would call disposition method in the united states okay Mm -hmm. um now here in cincinnati green um green burial like what is that right Mm -hmm. so a lot of traditions bury what, what we would call green and i have a hard time sometimes with calling it green burial because what we're kind of saying that the rest is what dirty burial, right. you know what I mean? Sure. And um, like embalming, let's talk about that. Yeah. Some people are very like embalming is bad. It puts chemicals in the ground. First of all, you can embalm with green chemicals, okay. so to speak. Okay. Um, and also embalming is a deeply ingrained cultural ritual for certain groups in yeah. the United States. And so I'm always very cognizant of like, I don't ever want to shame any disposition method. But the big problem is this. Let me blow your mind with this. In the United States, how crazy is it that you die, I bury you, and you get that land forever after you're dead? Yeah. But in other countries, usually you're like renting space and you're 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 Which in like a, a niche or something sense. for five years. If your family doesn't renew, they take your body out, they cremate you, and you get the remains back. Okay. Okay. And so that's how a lot of other much older countries see. The problem is the U.S. is young, and so we're kind of dumb about some stuff. <laughs> about so many things. Young and dumb. Yeah. I mean, really, because yeah. like compare ourselves to some of these countries that are four, like three, four, or five times as old as we are. Right. And look how they don't give a dead person land for eternity. Because there's a there's a, only so much land, and over centuries and centuries, yeah. if you fill it up with all your dead yeah. people, yeah, that's and all that's, that's left. Something I love to talk about because most people are like, yeah, that makes sense. But as as Americans, this is our cultural norm, yeah, norm yeah. so yeah. we don't think about it. Um, but so with green burial, you will get buried in like a shroud, which mm-hmm. is just like fabric. You're not embalmed, and you are in the ground three and a half, four feet deep. Um, and then at Heritage Acres, the new place that's coming. Um, there's no like headstone. Okay. You can do like a log and maybe engrave a on marker. it or something so it fits in naturally with the landscape. But the idea is that this is 40 acres that we've got mm-hmm. and we're not cutting down all the trees. The burial places are going to be like, oh, we can fit someone in between these two trees. And so as you wa- and then the idea is that it's this we're also preserving the land and then rebuilding it. Right. It was farmland, so we're going to be planting a lot of native species and kind of rebuilding it. Um, so that's going to happen by the end of the year. And we're actually doing some fundraising if people are called to support that. Heritage, Heritage Acres, you'll find it if Google you Google Heritage it. Google Heritage Acres. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
but that's here in Cincinnati, which is pretty cool and pretty amazing because this area of the country is not the most progressive like Washington State. Right, right, so right. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, and it is. I mean, there is something about, you said you're on the board of two. Yeah. This is one of, you know, there are gorgeous, beautiful, I live right next to Spring Grove yeah, oh my gosh, Cemetery. There yeah. are beautiful cemeteries here. Yep. That's why I did some of my training over 10 years ago. Yeah. And I mean, those go back, I don't know how old Spring Grove is, but I mean, some of the cemeteries around here have, you know, Civil War era folks. Yes. It's really neat. I mean, cemeteries to me are not morbid. Mm -hmm. They're, that's our community. Like in, um, like Linden Grove in Covington, Kentucky, 22 acres, 13 blocks from the river, mm-hmm. 22,000 people there. That's our community. That's where we come from. And history, in a society yeah. that is, we are like shedding our roots and being detached from our roots constantly. And we live in this like social media era where uh, you only spend 10 seconds with something. You go to a cemetery and I mean, look, there's 22,000 people there that have lived within the, one, the last 175 years within walking distance from right. where we are. Right. And we're so disconnected from that. And it's not about being sentimental and nostalgic. It's just, who do we think we are to think that we are so detached from that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, and that general hubris of, that we think we're the only people who figured things out that we're the only people who had a certain set of challenges, that mm-hmm. that perspective that walking through a cemetery and seeing that there were people here and understanding their stories or even imagining their stories takes you out of your own. Yeah. And which, which seems to me to be so uh, much of the work that you do mm-hmm. is that presence work, that the recognition of the fact of death mm-hmm. and, if you will, the demystifying not that it shouldn't also be mystical, but demystifying certain aspects of it and bringing yourself to a peaceful relationship with it yeah. is about recognizing it, those are the things that decrease anxiety and those, those are the things that root you in the present. Yeah. Saying that, that you're not the first and you won't be the last and things existed before you and they will exist after you and ultimately it's going to be okay and it's part of the process. Yes. Yes. And that, those are the thoughts that when I have had sort of the dark nights of the soul of, of yeah. pondering my own mortality, those are the things that actually really do help me is thinking I'm, I'm a flash of light Yes. for a minute. And so all that matters is like what you do with your moments and the quality of the moments that you spend. So that quality thing, um, me being who I am showing up for you today fully as who I am is a million times more valuable than me showing up being like, this is who I need to be. This is how I need to act. Who Um, do you expect me to be? Exactly. Um, Allows a soul to meet another soul. Mm -hmm. We live in a body. We are not our bodies. The body is the vessel that we have to communicate our soul through. Right. Um, A few months ago, Tencent Media, do you know who they are? They're they're like the Netflix of China. So the Chinese are starting to get really interested in death and Mm -hmm. like exploring it. They had me out um, for one of their specials and I did an interview about immortality because they're like, how can we live forever? And I'm like, that's a real bad idea. And let me tell you why. (laughs) Imagine, okay, so I'm Cole. I have a house in Main Strauss Village. If I live forever, all I'm going to start doing is amassing more 
things, more things, more things, more things. And in 300 years, I might own 800 houses and own 65 businesses and just uh, have all this stuff. And then people that are born are going to have less of an opportunity Mm -hmm. to maybe own something for themselves. Death allows us to have this cycle of pass it along, of letting other people continually make it better. So it's necessary that we die. It's necessary and important. And this is something I like to remind people Because what if you frame the idea that you're going to die one day, not from like, oh, it's just being taken from me, but what's happening is you're having the opportunity to let somebody else step in at a leg up more than you had, Mm -hmm. and then they could make it better. That's That's the framework of humanity, really. And so this idea of living forever is actually a really bad idea. Yeah, kind of a selfish idea. Yeah. Yeah, we were having this discussion, my partner and I were the other day, about how much of um, American culture right now is really based on this sort of zero-sum game mm-hmm. idea. That for me to win, somebody else has to lose. For me to have yeah. a thing, somebody else has to not yeah. have a thing. Yeah. That's just a continuation of that idea. That idea. Yeah. Yeah. It's not good. A couple of other things that I wanted to ask yeah. you about. One is, and I don't know if these are continuing, but the idea of the death cafes. Mm-hmm. Are you still doing those? You were doing those before. I was doing those, and I'm in the process of developing, like, my own sort of thing that's more thanatology-focused, but okay. yes. Because that's a fascinating idea. My partner, Tara Rose, in particular, has been for a long time really fascinated with the idea. Just quickly, what is, for people that don't know, the idea of a death cafe? So a death cafe is you have people in your community that say, hey, come here at this time, and you show up, and there's no agenda, and you can just talk about death. And usually there's cake and, like, drinks and stuff like that as well. Um, so, but I kind of, um, I, cr- I got in trouble from Death Cafe because... So it's an organization? It, it is an organization. You okay. have to follow their format. And so right. I followed their format, but the problem was that I would pick, like, a theme. Mm-hmm. So you'd show up, and I'd be like, this is the theme. And I would usually share, like, five minutes about some piece of my work or, like, something I encountered. Hmm. And it would help people get started going deeper more quickly. But you're not supposed to do that in the Death Cafe. So I have to, like, come up with my own thing. All right, so you're going to do an offshoot. We can watch for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On your your website. Yeah. And then uh, I do want... I want to just talk briefly because you you offer so many services that are related to, not necessarily tangential to this, grief counseling, death advisor... um, Thanobotany? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that for, <laughs> okay, just, okay. for just a second. Yes. Yeah, so do you know about the Lloyd Library and Museum here in Cincinnati? I do not. True gem. A true gem in the crown of Cincinnati. So if I had to make a crown for the city of Cincinnati, I would put the Mercantile Library in there where mm-hmm, we are. For sure. I would also put the Lloyd Library and Museum as one of those gems. Okay. So the Lloyd is over by Cincinnati City Hall okay. and it is like a botanical library. And it's funded, like it lives, like it has, it's fully endowed, which is amazing. And it's open to the public by appointment. Um, And it's not a library where you go in and just like check out books. Mm -hmm. You have to go in and they bring the books down to you because all their stacks are protected. So I am the recipient of one of their fellowships. I was a 2018, 2019 Curtis Gates Lloyd Fellow. And my research was on how did people use plants to deal with death and dying? Hmm. 
okay? So for months and months, 20 hours a week, I was there physically looking at books. And a lot of these books are not available online. They're not digitized. Mm -hmm. Um, And I ended up processing over 100 volumes during my fellowship time, categorizing them and breaking information out. Because what was surprising was you would think that there'd be a book on this because humans have been dying forever and Mm -hmm. using plants. There's not. And a lot of times the language was very death avoidant. So they would say, like, if someone was dying, they would say, like, declining or, um, you know, just hidden language. So the outcome of that was I was trying to develop, um, using thanatology and modern research on loss, how can we work with nature to help us process and deal with our grief? And that's thanabotany. Thanabotany is the study of how people use plants to deal with death, dying, grief, bereavement, loss, et cetera, across time and across cultures. So one of the outcomes of that was I have this huge, massive database that if you are German and from Cincinnati, you can put Germany in there and it will show a list of all of the plants that were used by that country or culture um, to deal with dying, Mm -hmm. leading up to death. Death itself, like body preservation, and then bereavement after. So used how? You said you mentioned. Yeah, so this is what's like so fascinating. So for example, okay, whales. You know where whales is, right? Mm-hmm. UK. Yep. Um, the Welsh have this tradition where somebody dies. Let's say you die, Brandon, okay? And I, let's say that I'm your female next of kin. Mm-hmm. I am responsible for finding someone in town and paying them for two weeks to keep rosemary on top of your grave. Wow. Okay? I don't know why they did that, but that's what they do. That's documented. I have sources for that. So if you are someone who is a modern-day human in America, you have no religion, no particular attachment to anything, but you know that you're Welsh, Mm -hmm. it might be a way to create something actually meaningful within your end-of-life ritual for your family, for everyone that you leave behind. Right. um, To be able to, like, everyone gets to pick a rosemary sprig and put it on your grave. Mm -hmm. That is meaning and ritual. And what do we know about meaning? It creates higher... And also, really what this does is it helps reduce the likelihood of encountering complicated grief. Say more. So complicated grief. So grief is a response, is a response to loss. Grief is not an emotion. Grief is not an emotion. (laughs) Grief is a response to loss. And that can have physical symptoms, Mm -hmm. like you can have a hard time sleeping. Mm -hmm. It can have mental symptoms, like you're forgetful. Um, It can have emotional symptoms, like maybe you're angry and crying all the time while I am just like, you know, I'm having different sort of emotional states. So everybody's grief response looks different, and it changes throughout our life. You might have been really angry in your 20s with grief, and then in your 40s, you're just real depressed, Mm. okay? So what we know is that when you have meaningful rituals and the sense of connecting to something bigger than yourself, you're less likely to have what we would call complicated grief, which one of the ways that we describe complicated grief is that like it goes on for a really, really, really long time to a point that it's really preventing you from living your life. Right. You know, it's okay to be sad and go to work. But it doesn't follow through. What are the, the, there's the model (laughs) for like the five stages of. Oh. Yeah, so that's Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's The Five Stages of yeah. Grief, DABDA, Denial, Anger, Bargaining, Depression, Acceptance. Okay. But we move through those randomly. Not it's not, not in that order. Okay. Um, there's also now a bunch more models of grief that we have. One of the 
things, and I believe that this would be a part of the grief response is anxiety. It's like this missing stage of grief or Mm. this missing component. And also, I believe personally that once you start grieving, so once like my grandpa died when I was 16, it never leaves you. Grief is then now a roommate that you have the rest of your life. And it's up to you to figure out how you're going to cohabitate in the same space. And you can try to ignore it. It's going to bust out and ruin a party sometimes. Or you can try to figure out how to meet this person, get to know them, see what they need. Um, so anyway, Thanabotany is now a tool that has been researched and developed, and I'm now entering the phase of, this is a new area I have to learn, how to do a actual clinical study on actual humans. You know, you have two groups, mm-hmm. a group that has a loss and doesn't have Thanabotany, right. and then a group that has loss and then engages with it, and then we see the outcomes and see if it actually helped or not. So that's the next thing I have to figure out. How do you do that? How do I meet the people that are qualified to do that? Because I'm not a scientist. I'm not a clinician. There's no way I could ever pass a statistics class. So I need to find people who could, you know? Um, So that's the next step there. Wow. Yeah. And then uh, maybe, you know... uh, just a little bit on Thano Yoga, which was also yeah. something on your site. Yes. Or, or there's so much on there that I just wanted to touch on each of these areas yep. to so, paint the picture of the vast, you know, realm of what you're yeah. doing. Yeah, how death shows up everywhere. Mm-hmm. So really we're talking about this stuff and people are like, what is this person doing? But it's just how to make grief better. That's it. That's all, all this is. So Thana Yoga, I'm a 200-hour certified yoga teacher. I've had more trainings than I can count. I have a bunch of teachers. I travel a lot to be with my teachers and stuff. Um, So anyone listening, most of them have probably had a yoga class at Mm -hmm. some point, statistically. Now, at the end of yoga, you lay flat on your back. Have Mm -hmm. you ever ever had a yoga class? Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. So it's called Shavasana. Translates to corpse pose. Yes. Okay. Let's talk about America right now. So in the East, the purpose of yoga is to become more comfortable with your own death. You literally go through the physical postures of class so that you can work out all your gunk so that you can lay and practice death Mm. at the end. We don't teach that in America because we don't want to make people feel bad. But that is the essence of where it comes from. So thousands of years of proof in the Eastern world that yoga, these physical postures, and yoga isn't just physical postures. There's meditation, there's breathing, Mm -hmm. um, help us deal with inevitable loss. But in the U.S., we frame it as just like An vibes, class. you know, workout yeah. kind of a thing. But really, we are skipping over this very important focus. So Thana Yoga is something that I developed over the years in conjunction with my teachers. There are particular ways that the class is structured. And we don't, you don't show up and like be like, okay, everyone, get real sad. Mm-hmm. It's just about having an awareness and a focus on the losses that you're navigating, whether they're Big deaths, dead body deaths, or shadow losses. Like, you're, you know you're about to get fired, so you're anticipatory grieving that. Mm. You can use um, stuff within the practice of yoga to better prepare for that and process and see what your loss response is, right? Because the loss response is physical. It's emotional. It's right. mental. So. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah that, yeah, that makes me think back to some experiences in yoga classes and uh, think about them in different ways. Yeah, and it's just not taught in like 99% of the American teacher training programs, which is too bad. Because the reality is, is yoga, people think in America that it's like just supposed to make you feel better. Like 
right? That's very American. But like a vocation, yoga is supposed to be some hard work. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to be work. It's not... And not just physical, emotionally challenging, psychologically challenging. Yes. Right, right. Yeah, so... Oh, Cole, I could... Thanks for asking about all that. No, it's wonderful. I could talk to you about this forever because so much of it touches on the basic questions of sort of just what it means to be human in our society. Mm -hmm. And work is a lens to that. Death is a lens to that. All of these things are facets of how we bring ourselves fully to this. So I, I love this. I sincerely appreciate both the work that you're doing and your willingness to come and talk about it. And I wish we had three times as much... Yeah. I want to ask you a question. Yeah, yeah, great. What do you want your book to be about? Um, my book is, the, the one book that I think about when I say that is a book about, um, let's see if I can sum it up. Basically, it's a book about the, uh, the American obsession with the idea of celebrity. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. And specifically sort of related to some of what we've been talking about, the ways that that obsession um, removes us from presence in the activities that we would otherwise pursue for their own sake. Mm -hmm. That when we make somebody famous for for doing something, then we don't practice that thing ourselves. Yes. When our athletes are famous, we don't play sports ourselves. When our artists are famous, we don't play the piano at home. Yes. When the poets and the writers are famous, we don't write poetry ourselves because it's a beautiful and wonderful thing to do. And that's the that's the the most basic summation of it. But that's the oh, book. Sorry to prod you on that, but like also, sorry. the first step to doing anything is talking about it. Mm-hmm. And that's also this is a technique that we use with people who are dying. So you're on your deathbed and you haven't written the book. The thing that I would do with you as your death companion is I would assign you homework to tell the people that enter the room to visit you to say goodbye about this thing that you wish you had had time to do and describe it. Research shows that will make you feel more complete about it Hmm. and better about it, just talking. Right. And so it's really important to to say the things that we want to do, even if you never end up doing them. If you don't put it out there, it won't get shepherded. Because you know it's going to happen. I'm going to tell you this. In like a few weeks, I'm going to be like, hey, Brandon, I just thought about your book, The Idea, or I saw this, and I might send you like a picture of something and be like, this made me think of your book. And yeah. Yeah. I hope you do. Thank you for sharing. No, oh, thank you for asking. I really appreciate it. You got to do that. That's an important thing. Thank you. It's in there. This is this is wonderful. I mean it sincerely. I've, I've enjoyed this. and Thank you for having me. This was super cool. And thank you for honoring my dog. <laughs> Happy birthday again, Ruby. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you, Cole. This episode of The Distiller was recorded live at the historic Mercantile Library, located at 414 Walnut Street on the 11th floor downtown Cincinnati, Ohio. Thanks again so much to Executive Director John Faherty and Programs and Marketing Manager Amy Hunter for their hospitality and their enthusiasm about hosting us for this episode. The Mercantile is a wonderful, special place. If you live in or around Cincinnati and have not been to the library, I encourage you, whether it's for a special event, like their Writer's Nights, their Words and Music series, their amazing Niehoff Lecture series, or just to stop in of an afternoon and peruse the shelves. It's a magical place and a beacon of intellectual hope in a time that doesn't seem to value that enough. So visit our website at thedistillerpodcast.com for links to the Mercantile Library's website and social media pages. Learn more about this true American gem. And please, when you stop in, 
tell John and Laura and the gang there that you heard it on The Distiller. Of course, huge, huge thanks to Colin Perry. This conversation was so much fun, and I do feel like we could have gone on twice, three times as long without running out of things to talk about. As you heard, Cole has her proverbial fingers in a lot of pies, and if you want to learn more about what she does, about thanatology as a field, about her podcasts, she has two, Life, Death, and Tarot, and the American Thanatologist podcast, and maybe even hire Cole for an event, for a consultation, or any of the myriad things she does, visit our website. We have links to her website and social media pages, as well as photos of our interview and of the amazing care package she gave me when she showed up. You'll also find the video of her TED Talk on being lifted by little deaths. It is really great, and that's all at thedistillerpodcast.com. Thanks, Cole, and again, happy birthday to Ruby. The Distiller is produced, recorded, and hosted by me, Brandon Dawson. Our show is mixed and edited by Justin Golden, with logo design by Scott Ryan and videos by Mike Helm of Minute Moments Pictures. You can find The Distiller wherever you listen to podcasts, listen, and download every episode of the show at thedistillerpodcast.com, where we have links, photos of the guests, a map of all of our show locations. If you like what we're doing, please follow, like, and share our posts on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And if you'd like to help support the show, you can go to the distillerpodcast.com and click on the Become a Patron button for more information on how to do that. Finally, it means a lot to us when you rate and review The Distiller wherever you listen. That is actually a big signal that helps us get the word out to other people. So wherever you listen, iTunes, Spotify, please give us a rating and review there. We really sincerely appreciate it. You can also always email us at mail at thedistillerpodcast.com. We love to hear who you think should be on the show to talk about their search for meaningful work or where you think we should record the next episode. So whether it's by email, on social media, anywhere, drop us a line. We always love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Brandon Dawson, and thanks for listening to The Distiller. Bye-bye.